0: those people who, who think that my creativity is my bipolar disorder. This album is proof that they're wrong.
1: Welcome to Art Heals, a podcast about arts and mental health and the people who create to heal. In each episode, we'll interview someone who uses art to enhance their own healing or who produces work that helps raise awareness about a variety of mental health challenges. I'm your host, Elaine Zhou, and I'm a mental health consumer and a musician, so I feel fortunate to have some understanding in both areas. Today for our first episode, we'd like you to meet Sarah Jickling. It's a rainy Saturday morning and our co host Serena Renner and I are walking the brick sidewalks of Gastown, Vancouver to meet Sarah Jickling. When she's not working as a musician and mental health advocate, Sarah studies aerial arts at Tantra Fitness. We meet her at the Gastown Branch for an aerial hammock class. Tantra Fitness is in a brick building across from Vancouver's famous steam clock. In a mirrored room down the stairs, eight women are warming up between loops of stretchy fabric dangling from the ceiling. The instructor, Alex Pearson, is calling out the moves. Sarah is warming up near us wearing a baby blue long-sleeved shirt, black and white speckled yoga pants, and white socks with rainbow-colored toes when it comes to balancing in plank position on a blue exercise ball Sarah is shaky but laughs through the wobbles until she falls off the side
0: I'm a pretty slow learner because I never did anything active like when I was younger so I'm not naturally flexible or strong So okay. I move pretty slowly through everything but um, That's why I really like this teacher, actually, because she was the same way. It just took her a long time to get through everything. Um, And so she's really good at, like, training people who aren't naturally good at it.
1: During the water break, we talked to Sarah's instructor, Alex Pearson.
0: I think that she's really opened up, and you can see that her confidence has increased. She's, like, much more willing to, like, be outgoing and chatty and stuff like that when you're in front of a group of people. Um, I think when she first started taking class she was a little bit quieter. Yeah.
1: We watch mesmerized as Sarah and the other dancers pull themselves into the hammock, loop the fabric around one ankle and dive down into all sorts of complicated looking moves. Aerial hammock seems like an intense workout that requires a strong core and laser focus. After the class, we head to Vancouver Public Library to find a quieter place to talk. Sarah puts on ugg style boots and a fuzzy sheepskin jacket. On the collar are two pins with the slogans, I took my meds and A-plus adulting. We sit down in the library to hear Sarah's story from her childhood to her solo musical career. Her first album, When I Get Better, tracks her journey through bipolar recovery. Her latest record, The Family Curse, explores the root of her mental health challenges. Our interview begins with a family curse and weaves Sarah's music throughout her story.
0: My dad would always say, this family's cursed. We're cursed. He had the idea that wherever we went, the rain followed us because we were cursed. It's kind of something that's been repeated over, like, inconsequential things, but the more it's repeated, the more I applied it to bigger things. So... When I was in my late teens, early 20s, my mental health started to really go downhill. I had pretty terrible things happen to me um, and and it was just that idea that, oh, my family's cursed. I'm cursed. It's because of who I am and who, where I come from. It, it gets reinforced, that confirmation bias of every time something bad happens, oh, maybe I really will never be happy. Um, so that kind of like negativity filter that comes along with depression and anxiety for most people, and especially my dad um, that was put into sort of a magical place when he talked about a curse and so when I wrote this album um, I, that I knew that I had to call it uh, The Family Curse now I, I, I see it as the history of bipolar disorder in my family and that's really what, what ended up being The Curse. for me. I never I
2: I used to say I sounded like a baby bird And when I spoke up you could barely even hear the words So I would choke instead I never meant to keep a secret But my silence was convenient Now I'm feeling mad Cause I'm learning to get louder As I'm growing older And I live through every time I wish my life was over Now I want to live in peace But if I never get to talk about the
0: curse It's always gonna hurt I had panic attacks Um, I had insomnia, constantly being afraid of things that maybe weren't totally rational and and so anxiety is pretty easy to ignore because it often pushes you to be exactly what the world wants you to be. So it pushes you to do your homework really well and practice piano really hard and show up everywhere on time because you're so worried about what would happen if you didn't do it and you're so worried that you're not good enough that it actually I think just ended up making me a very high-functioning like student and when I was probably around my last year of high school and then my early 20s that's when I would say bipolar symptoms start to pop up now bipolar symptoms are not Easy to ignore. They they do not make you into that kind of like ideal person <laughs> that that teachers want you to be or whatever. So I I would go into periods of feeling like really heavy, tired, sleeping a lot, um, and and also going to going into periods of of sleeping zero hours a night for multiple nights, and yet still having energy and just um, kind of being really easy, easy to irritate, easy to anger, that kind of stuff. I, I, I have rapid cycling bipolar disorder so I, I remember someone saying once like, I'm very afraid to pick up the phone when you call because I don't know who I'm going to get and what it ended up doing unfortunately is just pushing everyone away from me because people were like what is happening? I can't
1: handle this. This is too much for me. It took a long time for Sarah to get a proper diagnosis. During bouts of depression, she'd visit walk-in clinics where she'd be placed on a wait list to see a psychiatrist. Then, inevitably, she'd go back into hypomania and remove her name from the wait list. She repeated the cycle for years. The
0: first time I went to the doctor, she she said, okay, this is depression. Um care, some medication. Uh, I came back, and she asked a couple more questions, and she said, you have bipolar disorder. That was when I was, like, really young. Um, However, she did not explain what bipolar disorder was, Um, and she gave me some, some mood stabilizers and put me on a wait list to see a psychiatrist. Now, I... Instantly hated the mood stabilizers. They make you feel sleepy and sluggish and and awful Um, and and so I stopped taking them and I um, I found myself back in in hypomania so Hypomania is sort of a space where you feel really good. It takes away the critical part of your brain lots of endorphins just feeling full of energy full of ideas And I I experienced something that I call emotional amnesia. Whenever I was in one state, I would forget what the other one felt like and forget that I'd ever been in that state. So I would always get back to hypomania and cancel my psychiatrist appointments because the wait lists were like six months, eight months long. I would never get to see that psychiatrist who then would Ask me the right kind of questions and figure things out and explain to me what was going on Um, and after that uh, first my family doctor diagnosed me with bipolar disorder I thought well how dare she (laughs) Um, I'm not a crazy person um, and I never went back to her I decided at one point that medication and doctors were not for me and so I, I went to all sorts of alternative therapies I spent a lot of money paying people to tell me that bipolar disorder is not real and I can get rid of what I have by changing the way I eat, changing the way I live, that kind of thing, which is just so much more attractive than going to a doctor and the doctor giving you pills that have terrible side effects and then saying, like, this is going to stick with you for your whole life.
2: gonna try a new medication eastern religion or for meditation i'll change how i eat they'll change how i speak and i'll repeat my mantra before i go to sleep but suddenly it sinks in there's no time to fight it i see it's the very last time i can't keep going like this i'm gonna change i'm gonna cope i'm gonna hold on to what's left my heart.
0: whenever I would be back in depression and and feeling suicidal I mean I would be worried and um, it was actually my mom it was a Christmas and my mom uh, saw how how I was acting and she took me to again a walk-in clinic because I didn't have a family doctor at that point point. Um, and the doctor there said okay go to the hospital and say you will not leave until you see a psychiatrist. And I was really afraid because she said that so you're going to have to like convince them that you might die if you uh, don't if you don't stay. Um, and so that was on Boxing Day, and we went to the hospital and stayed there for eight hours until I finally got to see a psychiatrist, and then they admitted me into the psychiatry clinic at St. Paul's, and I was able to see a regular psychiatrist. Um, they got me, like, no wait list, like, okay, tomorrow you're going to see a psychiatrist, and that's when I saw somebody who asked me, you know, they did, like, an hour-long questionnaire and this whole psychiatric analysis thing. And on our third visit, she brought up, have you ever heard of bipolar disorder? And by that time, I was like, yeah, I know. I got I have bipolar disorder. I know. I had run into it so many times and I was running away from it. Um, So, yeah, by the time I was actually diagnosed by a psychiatrist at St. Paul's, I was like, I'm so ready to, to take this diagnosis because it's been chasing me and I've been running from it. So um, that's when I really just accepted it and, and moved on from there. Okay, I'm, I'm ready to get better. Uh, what, what do I have to do next?
1: Sarah has been writing and playing music since she was a kid. But during the hypomania of her early 20s, songwriting became almost effortless. Yet, she made the difficult decision to go on mood stabilizers anyway. She shares her perspective on the long-standing debate about the links between mental illness and creativity.
0: I, I had always written poems, like from the time I was little I would get my mom to I would dictate poems to her and get, them to, get her to write them down. And, I grew up wanting to be a writer, and one of my best friends in high school said, hey, let's start a band, let's, let's make music. Well, I already was a classical piano player, so I just put the two together and I started writing. But when I started to experience bipolar disorder symptoms, and I'd go into hypomania state, I felt like I would just like black out and wake up with a song. And suddenly I was just churning out song after song after song. It was just like, I I think I said once in an interview that I felt like I would just vomit songs out. I was not doing anything consciously. And a lot of people said things like, whatever is going on in your brain, it's making you write great songs. There is a lot of ideas out there that creativity and bipolar disorder are linked. So when I finally saw that psychiatrist and she was getting ready to put me on mood stabilizers, she said a lot of people find that when they go on mood stabilizers, they are not creative anymore. Are you ready for that? And it's true that it became way harder to write songs once I was on medication. Um, and suddenly I had to come back down and, and write from like kind of a sober place where I would sit down and, I mean, I didn't even remember writing most of my songs, so I didn't know where to start. And it was just really hard because I was just so aware of what I was doing and everything that I did, I doubted. The way that I ended up getting over that was first looking back at, at all the songs I'd written while I was um, struggling with bipolar disorder and, and telling myself they're not all amazing. I just wrote a lot of them. M- my creativity is not my illness. That's not where it comes from because I've had it since I was four. I I had that in my head. And, and then my friend gave me the suggestion to write about my, my family. That was something I'd been really kind of keeping inside, like... Just felt like I couldn't talk about with anyone, um, so it was it was this writing the songs about my family that that finally broke that that writer's block that was probably a two year ro- long writer's block of writing nothing, and I finally had something to say again. Which is why when my my mom asked me not to write this album, not to release an album, I said, "Well, if if I don't write these songs, I'm never going to write anything again because I have to write these songs. This is what my brain wants to write. So I kind of, it was a different experience. It took me a long time to write the songs. I had to revisit them. I had to get help. I, got, I had my partner and my friend Laura Smith come and co-write with me. I'd never done anything like that before. But I did it. Like I wrote an album on medication, which was kind of like a... To all those people who who think that my creativity is my bipolar disorder, this album is proof that they're wrong. I wasn't gonna let it out until way after both of you had kicked
2: the ball.
1: Producing her album, The Family Curse, was not easy, especially since Sarah's mum really didn't want her to release it to the world. Sarah talks about why she had to make the album anyway, the blueprint she used to create it, and how writing songs about family trauma and mental illness ultimately led to the greatest healing.
0: The choice to write about my experiences as a child, and I feel like kind of tell on my parents or tell on my family members. I was so afraid and I felt bad for doing it, but also it was flowing. It was a lot easier. And I was actually really inspired by Beyonce's Lemonade album because I thought, Okay. At the beginning, she's mad at Jay Z. She tells everybody he cheated on her, and the at the end they sing a duet and they're happy and in love. And so I I actually planned out my album to be, you know, this song is will be like this song and Lemonade, and this song will be like this song and Lemonade. Um, and that was it was part of how I got back into songwriting was planning and being so methodical about it. Um, and and I eventually like left that rubric but it was a really good place to start from because it gave me ideas for songs and it also gave me a goal which was that I wanted to end up at forgiveness. The first song that I wrote is called Saint and I, um, I, I wrote it because one of my aunts would always say that my dad was a saint and I I remember the last time she said that and I would, just went up to my room and cried. I said, yep, you're right. Because I couldn't say anything. She didn't know what had happened. And it's not that my dad is evil. Absolutely not. He, he does a lot of amazing things and he's been really wonderful. He's dealt with a lot of mental illness. So I empathize. But, but just to have to hear people praise somebody who kind of Terrified you, or hurt you a lot, it, and and just nod and smile. It, it didn't feel good. Just writing the songs uh, where I talk about kind of some of the violence and um, stuff that I was that I went through as a child was. I you know I, I was having less nightmares, less sort of like the trauma of carrying that around uh, left my body a little bit. So I found that super helpful and sharing them with uh, just, you know, friends, like a couple other people. I, I ended up discovering that certain people that I didn't know, like also had really difficult childhoods. And I was able to kind of like connect with those people about that. And, and, and to the people who, who didn't who didn't like I got to share and say this is what happened to me um just being able to like say hey this happened and I'm mad about it and I'm sad about it um and just letting people know (laughs) it's it it did a lot of healing first he built me then
2: he broke me gave me breath and then he choked me i mm-hmm.
1: Writing songs like "Saint" didn't break Sarah's family curse or the denial of intergenerational mental illness, but it did help foster some acceptance and awareness within her family, as well as among her fans.
0: I think that my, the rest of my family, my extended family, is holding on to it a little bit. They don't want to talk about the diagnosis that has happened, diagnoses that have happened in my family. I mean. I, there's one thing to like speculate that a person is dealing with mental illness, but I discovered that my grandfather was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the end of his life. I mean, and people, I had bipolar disorder like diagnosed and I was speaking out about it for a couple of years before anyone told me that. So it was just like such a secret. I don't even know if my parents knew that, like it was a secret within the family even and nobody talked to each other. So, I think that within my immediate family, there's been some acceptance and we've survived it. We've survived the album. (laughs) Um, And I just hope like in the long run, my cousins, we are, we are talking about it. And we're the people who are going to have children and continue this family. And, and hopefully we can break the cycle of, keeping secrets and stuff and that's been powerful to talk to my cousins about that kind of stuff. I write the songs for the listeners, for for the audience, for people who will relate. Um I just I just hope that I'm speaking their truth as well and that they feel heard and like that they feel they feel understood. I've heard from a few people like that they feel like the song is about their dad or, you know, certain other songs are about them. And that's exactly how I want people to, to take the songs. Like I'm saying this for myself, I'm standing up for myself. But if you hear my song and you hear you standing up for yourself in your specific situation, then that's amazing. And that's what I want. And that's, My goal, really. And there's one song on the album that I I put on and it was actually not, it's not about my parents at all, but I'd written it. Um, and I just thought, Oh, it kind of sounds like it's about my parents. So I'll put it on there. It sounds like it's sounds like a forgiveness song. I'll take care of you song. Um, then my best friend listened to it and said, no, it's not about your parents. It's about your listeners. It's about how you're, always going to be there for your listeners and, um, the people who support your music. And then that felt totally right to me because I've, I wrote it about myself. I wrote it, um, as a song, uh, to saying, I promise that I will take care of myself in a time when I wasn't hundred percent sure if I was going to take care of myself. Um, and then it ended up being a promise to the listeners as well. And that felt right. Hold on till your knuckles
2: are high I know we'll make it through the night. Just breathe and look at something solid And I'll be right here if you want me Like I promise
1: When she's not recording on her stage name, Sarah Jickling and her good bad luck, Sarah can be found spreading mental health awareness at high schools with Reach Out Psychosis, a touring presentation of the British Columbia Schizophrenia Society. She tells us about that work and what advice she gives to teenagers who are struggling.
0: We actually go to high schools around BC with uh, Reach Out Psychosis. So we go on tours, we go up to northern BC, we go everywhere, um, which has been really interesting because, you know, different towns have different ideas of what is what mental illness is about and what's okay and what's not okay. Also, different towns have different resources, which has been huge uh, resources. I I feel so grateful to live in Vancouver where where I do have the ability to go on a waitlist to see a psychiatrist. You know, some places you want to go see a psychiatrist, you have to drive eight hours. You probably have to move. Um, I've enjoyed it because it gives me a chance to share my music and tell my story um and when i when i go into the usually it's a gym or a theater um and i do the presentation i just think about myself in grade nine and i think what would i what would i have needed to hear in order to think oh i need to get some help and that's really similar to how i do my music that's I'm speaking to those people who who don't realize that they need help but they are struggling. Um and my number one advice, I mean it for for students, is really to put themselves first. Uh obviously it depends what they're what they're struggling with, but I'm all your mental health is more important than anything else. So I I mean, I got good grades, I had scholarships, I had chances to go do what stereotypically is the right thing, the good thing after high school, and I couldn't because I was unwell. And so if I have students who are like, I'm I'm, I'm anxious, I'm stressed out, I can't sleep, I can't do this, I don't want to be here, I'm like, okay, what can we do for you? It's okay if you're going to be late for your next class. It's okay if you don't go to your next class because this is not as important as you being okay. and I really push that idea of putting everything putting everything um, putting yourself first and being as selfish, I guess, as you want because it's self-care and it's ultimately not selfish because then you can take care of other people and you can like be a good student or be a good employee or whatever um and i know that there's I, i know that all the teachers are out there you know they're gonna catch the kids who don't who Who need someone to tell them to go to school? I don't. That's not what I. That's not what I do. I'm not going to say. Make sure you show up for every class and be on time and do your homework. Uh, They have lots of people telling them to do that. So I'm here to say, you don't have to do your homework. (laughs) You can. You can sleep. You need to sleep. You need to eat. You need to. Like sometimes I'll have students and they'll tell me stories and then they'll feel like very shaken up. Um, but they have to go to their next class. And I said, don't go to your next class. Go get yourself a hot chocolate. Like, just that, that's what I would have needed to hear um, is, like, that, you know, if you're feeling suicidal because you have to um, live up to the expectations of going to school and doing all your extracurriculars and whatever, like, it's way more important that you live
1: Lately, Sarah's main form of self-care has been aerial arts classes at Tantra Fitness, which takes us back to where this story began. She practices six days a week and has even started incorporating aerial dancing into her music videos. Sarah tells us why aerial arts has become such an important part of her mental health regimen. I always say
0: that my exercise is as important as my medication. So when I started doing pole dancing, I stopped Feeling suicidal. The reason is because I found something that brought me joy. Um, and I was so interested in it. Like I just wanted to, I just wanted to learn the next move and get better. And like, it was so challenging and, and it, it felt like I have the, my whole life ahead of me to learn this art and, that was something to look forward to, which is just like very important. If you're feeling suicidal to feel like you're going to miss out on something if you, if you don't make it well, like I have my whole life to learn all different kinds of dance and I want to learn this move and I want to be this strong and I want to do this. And that was really important. That was really huge. Um, in order to, yeah, have me, feeling less suicidal and, and also self harming less. Um, I mean, a big part of pole dancing is that you need to use like every single part of your body to stick to the pole. It definitely stopped me self harming because I, when I would think about it and I think, well, I could get relief in this moment, but then it would really hurt me when I have to climb the pole or whatever. It's just, on like a chemical level. Also just really good to have super intense exercise to do every day. Uh, I mean, I, I did yoga for a while, you know, for quite a while, but, um, it just is nothing compared to the intense exercise that, that, um, is, trying to hold on for dear life to an apparatus, whatever it is. And so I recommend kind of intense exercise, um, because I- if you're dealing with anxiety or depression or anything like that, because it not only does it kind of wake you up, um, it also calms you down because, you know, endorphins, all that stuff, it kind of is the perfect combination, of, um, um, energy and, and calm. And so I am just like a huge, uh, supporter of people doing this kind of, this kind of exercise or whatever they find joy in really. But I, I highly recommend trying to hang upside down on anything cause it is just really fun. It's just like you forget about everything else in your life. It was that, like, final thing that I needed on top of all the medication and everything. Once I found um, aerial arts, I mean, it, it just made everything so much better.
1: For Sarah, the word better has changed meaning throughout her mental health journey. She used to think it meant a life without mental illness, but now she identifies more with a Douglas Copeland quote. It doesn't go away. You just learn to live with it. We ask Sarah what better looks like today
0: it's kind of that idea of learning to live with whatever sort of disability or whatever you want to call it. Um, how can you thrive with it instead of saying, how can you overcome it? Because we don't know how to, how to get rid of um, mental illnesses. We don't understand the brain very well. So uh, all I can do is like make things manageable it it won't go away but it but it's a lot more manageable it's not ruling my life anymore now when i think about better i think about comparing myself to my past self improvements that way if i get through a, a family uh, vacation without screaming at anyone amazing job be like yeah i did it uh just like sort of comparing like oh well last year I had like I had 20 panic attacks this year I had two like that's better that's better I had a panic attack and I felt so bad about it how did I get so down and my partner said do you realize that you used to call me every single day crying in some sort of panic attack every day and you'd done it once in the past like six months I am not a person who doesn't experience these things but I've gotten a lot better like a lot better and and I'm going to continue to get better you know just by like, doing all this work that I've been doing but you did your
2: best and where you messed up I will try
1: so hard to do it better 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 better, better that's our show. Check back every month for a new episode, which will open your mind about the healing powers of art. This show is based in Vancouver, British Columbia, but we love to connect wherever you are. If you know someone working at the intersection of arts and mental health, please let us know. Our email address is arthealspodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think of this show and how you found us. Art Heals is produced by Earl Peach, writing in direction by Serena Renner, Laurence Richard is our web guru, and I'm your host, Elaine Jo. Until next time, remember this quote from French artist Georges Braque, art is a wound turned into light.